Welcome to The Unstoppable Singer. I'm your host, Danielle Tucker, a professional vocalist, vocal coach, and a lead singer of the Mighty Untouchables Band. I'm also the producer and host of the Pandemic Proof Singer Summit and The Unstoppable Singer. The Unstoppable Singer follows the lives of real professional singers who've made incredible achievements in their lives and careers. We cover everything from voice work, making money, booking gigs, songwriting, recording, session work, and more. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe button so you never miss another podcast. Now on with the show. Now, let me introduce you to our guest. This is a wonderful guy that I have with me tonight. He is someone I've had the opportunity to work with many times, and I just love him to pieces. We have Larry Grano with us tonight. Um, he has been a drummer for 35 years and uh, has made a profession of it for 30 of those years, um, San Diego based, but he has toured uh, all over the world with various bands and artists. Um, you, if you're here in San Diego, you would know him best from Soul Persuaders Band, from Big Time Operator, and from Back to the Garden. So let me bring him on right now. Larry, when I first talked about this, uh, you said you were like, I want to clarify that I'm a drummer who sings also, <laughs> which yeah. I completely, completely understand. Yeah. Uh, you are a fantastic drummer. I love working with you. You've worked with the Mighty Untouchable several times. Yeah. Um, you are an amazing musician and you are an amazing singer as well. <laughs> so Coming from one, I say thank you very much. Yeah, totally legit that you're on the singer series. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so just to kick things off, let's kind of step back pre COVID times and tell me what, what was going on with you career and life wise before all of the madness ensued and, and what was transition into quarantine like life like for you? Let's go back to uh, July of 2019. Mm. Going over to England and touring with Eve Sellis. Uh, I've been doing that since about, I think, 2006. And uh, we went over and performed. And Eve has always been so generous with her uh, stage time. She allows me to sing a tune now and again. And uh, after a while, um, she just kind of had her hand on my back saying, why don't you put out a CD? Every, okay. Listen to everybody clapping. Why don't you put out a CD? And so, because you're a side man and you've been a side man, I've been a front man in some bands, but uh, nothing really with original material or anything like that. So I went ahead and did it and recorded it over at Jim Soldi's house, and you know Jim. Yeah. So uh, started doing uh, some of it over on tour, one of the songs. And it just started taking off, and uh, people showed a lot of interest over there. So coming back was a lot of fun uh, because not only uh, did we have the Eve tour coming back, but we also had a bunch of Back to the Garden situations coming up, like at Powery Performing Arts Center at the Belly Up Tavern with some of our shows, mm -hmm. with some of our uh, storybook shows. So all that was just coming in and it was just fantastic. And we're playing a gig in January of 2020. And uh, I look at a post on Facebook and I've been nominated for a San Diego Music Award. Wow, I didn't know this. So, yeah, with my, but it was an EP, okay? So, uh, so all of a sudden it's like, holy cow. So. All this is going on. Shows are happening. I get asked by uh, Rosalie to come down to uh, Tio Leo's, get a band together, and play songs off my EP. And that's all going on. And then all of a sudden, March 15th hits, and nothing. Crickets. And then it keeps going. It keeps rolling. It keeps rolling. Uh so I want to apologize to everybody for releasing a CD and creating this pandemic and, and starting this whole time. So. Yeah. <laughs> nice going guy. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing, 
<laughs> one of the songs by uh, a friend of mine named Rich Wiley uh, on like the opening song of, on the CD is called Come On Over. Okay. So how do you promote a song called Come On Over when a pandemic hits and it's like, come on over, but stay outside. But you know. right. With a mask so, on and hand sanitizer. Right. right, right. <laughs> so that happened. And then all of a sudden, just kind of listen to the news, listen to what was going on. I've got a cousin that I'm really close to who works back in New York in the uh, Sloan Kettering uh, Cancer Research Lab in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And he's just got medical stuff going across his desk all day long. So I just sat there and would call him. Now what's going on? Mm -hmm. Now what's happening with this stuff? Mm -hmm. Before the news media and everything else kind of got in the way of stuff, I would try to get it from immediate sources. And so you just kind of sit there, man, it's not moving. It's not going anywhere. And poor folks are, are suffering and losing their lives in a horrible way. So, you know, my, uh, my whole situation seemed very insignificant right then. It, it showed me exactly what I was on the food chain of life. I am someone who, uh, if you've got woes during your day and you want to hear music, I'm there to make you smile. I'm there to make you dance. I'm there to, to lighten the load of a day. Mm -hmm. But uh, as of right now, I'm just on hold like everyone else. Yeah. 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 So, well, we obviously all ended up with a, a lot of time on our hands and um, everyone that I've talked to has really experienced this in a different way. Some have really uh, embraced and enjoyed the change and have, you know, it's, it's um, maybe helped them, turn in, uh, into a different direction in life that they hadn't thought of before. Mm -hmm. uh, for others, it's been really devastating. It's been tough. It's been um, depressing, you know, and, and, you know, financially um, a terrible shit show, you know, so everybody yeah. has experienced it yeah. different. How has that, how has it been for you? And what, what sorts of things have you done to fill the time? Have you um, developed any new interests or return to old interests? Huh. A few years back, I took, uh, I'd, I've been playing golf for a long time. And so uh, a few years back, I uh, took a, uh, a lesson from a, a good bass player and a really nice guy named Jonah LeBlanc uh, around town and uh, really started getting into the game of golf and really just enjoying it. I picked up the game because uh, when I was younger, I would, I would play clubs 9 to 1.30 a.m., and you go in there and you practice for about three hours, four hours a day, and then you go to the gig and you make a mistake, and I would wear my shoe out on my own behind saying, how can you practice for that long? And then just make a mental error like that. Yeah. So I picked up the game of golf, and, and it's a uh, – you've got to hit it where it lies. It's called the art of recovery for a reason. Hmm. So – uh, just kind of got into golf because it's social distanced. I can hit a ball farther than six feet. Yeah. So I'm good with that. Um, but other than trying to get out and trying to do that stuff, yeah, there was uh, there were depressing times because, as you know, when you're when you're with a band or when you're with a group of folks, and you miss that camaraderie on stage, that just that feeling that we're passing along feelings through music. Um, and so that that got depressing and that was saddening. Other than that, just trying to uh, keep things going. Uh, mm -hmm. After a while, for me, I just stopped practicing because to me it was like, you know, this is going to roll for a while. And I've been playing, actually, uh, your numbers were, I, I forgot to mention, uh, I've been playing for like 47 years. I've been playing since I was 13 and I'm going to be 60 this year. So I just stopped. I just, I just dropped the sticks and stopped mm -hmm. and stepped back and really just kind of took time off and just assessed the feeling of, it was almost like mourning a death. A friend of mine, another drummer, a friend of mine uh, brought up that phrase and it was, it kind of hit 
right in the heart of it. This is mourning a death because something that you absolutely love and you poured your whole life into and your life work into has gone away like that. Yeah. And so you sit there and try to look around and pick up the pieces and just trying to keep an even strain on things because you know it's tough and it's tough for a lot of folks. And a lot of folks were tough. Uh, we're going through tough times online and you sit there and reach out to the community and, and try to help out, you know, try to call folks. I was calling folks more often. Uh, I like to stay in touch with friends because that's how you build relationships. That's how you keep relationships for a long time. I've got friends I've known for 50 years, man. So it's, it's those guys you went to elementary school with or something like that. And you just reach out when times are tough. So, I guess when people saw me slipping, they'd reach out to me and vice versa. Then I'd reach out to them. So it was a nice, it was a nice way to um, really stay a hold of community through the social mediums that we had offered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely has been a silver lining in all of this is just being able to reconnect. I mean, right. I, I don't know about you, but when we're kind of in that that normal pace of life, gigging, doing our adulting every day. It's so easy to just kind of let, let all of our friendships and our, our family situations just kind of lay off to the side there. And it, it kind of becomes a, um, gosh, I miss them, but I'll, I'll, I'll get to them with when I can, but having True. gone through all of this now, it, it really hit me hard. Um, just how many relationships, um, how far some had slipped away, you know, sure, and, sure. and having to, you know, try to um, draw those back into my life. And so it's really, uh, that has been an interesting aspect to all of this, good and right. bad, you know. And I just, you know, it just takes cultivating. It's like, it's like a flower. It's like a plant, you know, you just mm -hmm. keep on doing it. And sometimes people slip away because, What's the old phrase? Some folks are in your life for a season. Others are for a reason or I don't know, 31 days of September, something like that. So, uh, you know, you just reach out and those folks who are kindred spirits, I still run into and I still feel so. Mm -hmm. And it's a great connection. And, you know, the, the, uh, the thing that I try to stress when I'm teaching music, when I'm uh, talking about music to students is the nonverbal communication that music has such a power to. You sit there and you look at a guy and you've played with this guy and you know which way he's going with the gig. You know which way he's moving with what he's playing. And it's just great. And here we go. Mm -hmm. Your drummer, your drummer, Michael Gein, taught me one thing about playing big band music. And it's like you got these group of guys. It's like, okay, we're all moving over here now. Okay, come with me. We're now moving over here, and it's a group. Yeah. So all that nonverbal communication went away with all this stuff, and trying to get it back and trying to build that feeling is key to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And in the midst of all this, so, you know, we obviously all of our musical arrangements have fallen by the wayside, but a few things did come up here and there, uh, one for you and I together, uh, yes. was the show that we played um, with Back to the Garden. I, I can't recall exactly what month that was in, but this was a show that had been planned well a year prior yeah. to the pandemic hitting. I mean, I remember putting it on the schedule thinking, gosh, that's a long way away, but already looking forward to it. You know, it's a wonderful yeah. band. Yeah. And then as as all the uh, all of this hit, of course, it, it got tentatively canceled, but then the venue changed several times. And then right. ultimately, it ended up working out. We did a live stream concert from um, the belly up. But what what was that like for you when the gig was confirmed and you realized, okay, well, I'm going to jump, I'm going to be jumping back into singing and playing with this was, was it awkward? Was it uh you know, did it kind of just give you something to work towards or what were your thoughts about that? For me, it wasn't awkward. It was, uh, it was the chance to, to do what I love again with the people I love mm -hmm. and have a great time. And like folks like you, you, you know, you, uh, you bring such a big 
uh, a thick slab of talent and joy and just all around great work uh, to to the project. Every time we've we've had you as a guest, you've just nailed it, and it's been so fun to play with you. So thank you for all that. I really dig it. Oh, thank right you. On. Um, so yeah, so just for me, it was the type of thing like, wow, here comes a bite at the apple. <laughs> and, and I was just, sometimes I was out of breath. So, cause I was so nervous and excited to be able to play, yeah. to just do what I do to just play. Uh, so yeah, a little bit of prep and a little bit of something to look forward to. And we'd had a gig before and it was at the same venue and it was for the Catalina uh, hospital fund. We were uh, raising money to help out with Catalina and their refurbishing, remodeling, rebuilding of their hospital. And uh, and I noticed it then that I got home, felt great, still jacked up from a gig like I usually am. And then all of a sudden the next day it was like, wow, it's gone. Mm-hmm. And that little bit of sadness comes in. It's like, wow, when's When's the next one? Because as you know, well, the next one's what Thursday. Next one's Wednesday. Next one's Tuesday. I got I got to go do a thing at uh, a casino, or I got a studio gig, or I got this or that. And it's like, no, man, it's gone. Mm-hmm. So struggling with that and trying to put that into perspective and really feel like, okay, just go out there and do the job, nail the gig, and then deal with whatever comes on the other side of that emotionally financially, whatever, but just put that foot forward and make it the best one. Yeah, so, uh, and folks, and folks were talking about, you know, how playing a live stream show with no audience was strange. To me, it's like a studio. Oh yeah. To me, it's like a session. If I'm going to pump energy into a, into a track that I'm doing, why can't I do it like that right there? No problem. Just yeah. do it. So yeah, yeah. I know. I think I guess that can be really situational depending upon who you're playing with. But uh, the show we did there just to me was magical. This, Despite it being, you know, a live stream with, you know, no audience, it's just the band is um, so phenomenal musically and just great, great humans in that band. (laughs) And I have to say that that just, that was one of the highlights of the year for me was getting to do that show. And um, I just, I enjoy so much working with all of you anytime the chance comes up, but uh, kind of adding on to what you said about when it was over, how that felt. Um, You know, our friend Lauren Lee was in the show as well. And she and I were talking backstage and just we we continuously kept saying how excited we were to be there and how awesome this was was just really feeling like euphoric. And and I remember her saying, like, I'm afraid to wake up tomorrow. Oh, I'm afraid, you know, because of the sadness I'm going to feel this that this is over. And and man, it just it's so true. So true. Um, Wow. I'm curious to know with you something that has weighed on me throughout all of this is I can imagine if you were just starting out um, in the business and you were in your teens, 20s or 30s or something, it might not be a big deal to skip a year of your career and, uh, you know, just kind of enjoy doing other things in life and know that you have several more decades ahead of you in the business. But um, at, at my age, I'm not thinking of it in terms like that. I mean, I, uh, I, I kind of more think that every year that I'm performing is precious and I want to, I want to really experience it. I didn't want to lose a year. I did not want to lose the year. And Somebody that, owes me a year. <laughs> that really bummed me out a lot. Did you, did that bother you? Um, <laughs> here's, here's the other side of that coin, Daniel, is that for me, it's like, man, when I was doing this, when I first started out, it was nine to one Tuesday through Saturday in a smoky club. And it was a grind. Sometimes Tuesday and Wednesday, you were playing to candles Thursday, Friday, Saturday, people start coming in. And then if you wanted to get into a new club, you had to play Sunday and Monday at that club. Mm-hmm. So there was, 
you know, people would say, wow, man, did you see Seinfeld? I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) I missed out on a lot of stuff because I was continually gigging. I was constantly gigging. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I I worked a lot out in the East County and then I got, uh, I got back and went down to Jose Murphy's to see the uh, Soul Persuaders and my old uh, neighbor friend and a great keyboard player in town, uh, Craig Zarcos and the keyboardist Mike Peters ran up to me and said, Hey man, we're leaving this band. They need a, they need a drummer who can sing. And that was private domain. Okay. So private domain was still kind of locked up with that stuff. So, you know, going and playing that stuff and playing Monday, Tuesday with one band, Wednesday through Saturday with private domain, Sunday at the barefoot bar with private domain and here comes Monday again. Mm-hmm. So when you've got that in your, you know, in your repertoire and you're able to do that for years and years and years, when you come across something like this, for me as a player, it's like, wow. And I posted it today on Facebook. I actually set my sticks down for a while. Mm-hmm. And it was just that type of feeling, a feeling of like, you know, I'm going to look back on all that I've done, all the people that I've played with, all the gigs that I've had, all the great experiences that I've had and say, man, I come from a coal miner grandfather, a migrant, a migrant farmer, coal uh, uh, grandfather, um, and just, just a line of people who worked hard. And I've been able to do this. I've been able to play for 47 years. So when I took that break, it's like, okay, this is a little well-deserved and let's take some time off and let's sit back and really look at what you've been doing and, you know, and just really assess it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not this guy or that guy, but I'm me and I've got a lot of great experiences and I've had a lot of good fun and I plan on having a lot more. Mm-hmm. So this time off was more of like, wow, let's, let's pause and reflect. Yeah. Well, that's a good lens to look through. Um, because because as I look at my rearview mirror, man, I see all the people who worked hard to get me here. Mm-hmm. The noise abatement committee, when I was a little kid, went around and uh, scared the heck out of my folks because somebody complained about me being a drummer playing too loud. What? My mom went around with a petition to the neighbors and said, good, bad, or indifferent. What do you think? And it's like, well, he's not breaking into my car. He's not dating my daughter. <laughs> we know where he's at all the time. And it's okay. Yeah. So I see those guys. I see my neighbors at shows. Hmm. And it's such a great thing to share, to reach over and go, remember when I sounded like tennis shoes in the dryer, man? It's, you know, here, <laughs> here, here, here. So it's fun to share that stuff. It's fun to be able to bring those people in going, hey, thanks for not beating me up and, and this and that for, you know, because I was just doing what I love to do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. I love I love that. That's wonderful. Oh. Um, I So speaking of uh, your history, I want to dive into that a little bit more. Before I do that, I want to make sure that we acknowledge um, our friends in the chat here. We have Sarah Dotson with us. She says, hello. Hi, Sarah. Hey. And uh, David Ibarra, he says, Larry is my Goomba. Ah, Goomba. <laughs> Jake Nager, speaking of awesome drummers. Believe it. <laughs> yeah. And, Faith and his brother. Adams. And his brother. <laughs> and his brother. That is right. That is one talented family. <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah. Faye says, um, our favorite drummer and friend. Oh. Yes, you are. Uh, is that Faye Adams? Yeah. Remember London? <laughs> right story <on>. there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's jump into your background. Tell me how you got started in music and what has the journey been like for you? I uh, always wanted to be a baseball player. Okay. Curveball kept going over the fence. <laughs> Not good. Not good. So uh, I started playing when I was about five years old and then I stopped for sports. 
And uh, we just, a lot of good athletes on our block and in the neighborhood. And you would go out and get your head handed to you. And uh, if you wanted to play, if you wanted to be on the team, you had to be, you had to beat somebody. So uh, years go by and I'm, and I'm starting to play, uh, starting to play music. And it's that type of thing. This It's the same type of thing. Trying to get in with good players and learn how to play. Learn how to play correctly. Mm-hmm. So my first drum instructor was Tom Boyd of the Heroes and of the band Listen at that time. And uh, he was teaching out of Mark Augustine's Music Man down in Grantville. And I was uh, I was born and raised in Allied Gardens, mm-hmm. like kind of by San Diego State area, Waring Road. So started taking lessons from Tom and uh, just kind of locked myself in the garage and played and played and played. Guys, hey, we're going to party. I got to practice. Hey, we're doing this. Got to practice. So when it came time to playing in clubs with different musicians, um, I had really lucky opportunities to play with older players that were really good. Uh, my first my first kind of blind sit-in with a band, I was filling in with for a gentleman by the name of Richard Augustine. Richard Augustine was a drummer for the band Emergency Exit, and he was uh, he was touted at one time by I think Black Oak, Arkansas, because Tommy Aldridge had just left and they were looking for a double bass drum player. So this guy's out there and he's backing up Warren Wiebe. Warren Wiebe, David Foster's uh, demo singer, mm-hmm. and some other uh, and some other gentleman by the name of Don Otten who's another San Diego legend. So those guys are playing in that band, and Richard has a, has a band where it's Gus Bodwin on bass, and Richard gets sick, and I fell in. And from that time on, I played with friends, but at the same time, from that time on, I learned how to put my head on a swivel because Gus just said, I'm going to tell you how fast it is. I'm going to tell you when I want you to stop. And then I'm going to tell you where the ending is. Here we go. And that night was just eyes wide open, head on a swivel watching everybody. Mm. It was a great, it was a great testing ground. It was a great learning ground because you had to grow your ears because the stage was built so poorly. You had to kind of listen over people. Mm. You've got a guitar player next to you, but I want to hear the keyboard solo and see what's going on. So you kind of, that's where you learn how to play quiet. Mm, that's where you learn how to play to the band because if i'm sitting here getting my jollies and i can't hear the keyboard player i'm not doing my job Mm -hmm. if i can't hear everybody i'm not doing my job so i learned that in those smoky clubs underage as a kid just doing that and grinding Mm -hmm. the turquoise lounge the navajo inn uh my rich uncles whiskey flats all these places you play. Um, so kind of moved from band to band, moved from playing to friends to get more professional with it. And uh, wound up in about 1990 with Private Domain after playing years and years out in the East uh, County, moving up to L.A. for a little while, seeing what that was like. Uh, I checked that out. And to me, it was like, wow, this is kind of like everybody knows everybody. This is like high school. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm a new kid. I'm a transfer. So I just like, no, nah, I'm, I'm out. I'm, I'm out and I'll go back and do what I do. Mm-hmm. So coming back here looking for studio work and this and that, <laughs> you know, Duncan. The other gentleman is Jim Plank. I would watch Jim Plank uh, from Ilarios on KPBS in the day. And so I walk around trying to get studio work, and they say, "Man, you got to kill two people. You got to kill Jim Blank and uh, Duncan. <laughs> Give me an address. What? <laughs> I need a gig." But once I met him, it's like I can't kill those guys. Those, those no. nice guys. I can't. I can't do that. So, just grinding away with Private Domain and really working hard. Good band, great world class slide player, Jack Butler, Paul Schaefer, great front man. Mm-hmm. Dean Smith, you know Dean Smith. Dean Smith was playing bass 
in that band. And then he comes in one night with a guitar and I start screaming, you're a holdout because he's an amazing <laughs> guitarist wow. and a songwriter. Yeah. So as you can tell, I've just built my path by trying to be the lousiest guy in the band. Mm -hmm. I got to get in with, I got to get in with better players. And once I get in with better players, I start learning what they're doing and why they're doing it and the philosophy of how they're doing it and what should be done here and who's done other things that are similar. So just building that, that innate sense that we have after years of playing on stage and playing with people. Mm -hmm. I went from private domain to Rockola, a big corporate party band in town for years, uh, Beatles heavy. And, uh, I knew all that stuff going in. One of the main reasons why I wanted to work with Rockola was because I had a songwriter in there by the name of Mark DeCerbo. Mark DeCerbo was legendary in town already with his band Four Eyes. And him just being a great pop songwriter and a great singer and a great player and a nice guy and another Goomba. Uh, it was like, wow, I've got, I've got this amazing world of I can play great classic rock and I can create fun power pop and have a say in some of this stuff, you know, uh, thanks to the songwriter. So I had the best of both worlds. And then Eve Sellis came along. Eve needed a drummer for a gig and I just kind of went right in and it was the same type of thing, mm -hmm. except more, except heavier with the original material because she had been doing that for quite some time from King's road into her name, Eve Sellis, that band. So I knew Mark because Mark Intravaya played with Tom Boyd, my first drum instructor. Mm -hmm. I knew Rick Nash because years ago I took up the lead singing uh, position in the soul persuaders after Steve Sears left Rick's in that band. Uh, I did not know Jim and uh, man, Jim is a deep well. Yeah. He not only is a sweet guy, but man, he's a deep well and just wisdom for days and fun. Mm -hmm. So on top of all that, you've got Sharon White. <laughs> so it's like, you know, and, and Sharon's just amazing. She's, she's a classical player. She can play Rachmaninoff and then she can play Floyd Kramer mm -hmm. and kill him and just kill it. And it's like, so, When you surround yourself with great people, you're either going to fail or you're going to rise to it. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of uh, <laughs> just trying to keep that balance, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so one story that I didn't tell was uh, the story of uh, after my father passed, I wanted to honor him by playing big band music. Mm -hmm. So I went and joined a community big band. And I'd been a rock player all my life. I, I learned how to read uh, by taking lessons from a guy who had a Scottish pipe band by the name of Malcolm Rosenberger, great guy. And, uh, but I never used my reading. So when it came down to big band, couldn't read, hmm. could not read. It's the same reason why I got kicked out of a uh, big band in high school. And I asked them, well, I'd like to learn how to read. And they said, we don't do that here. We don't teach that here. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not asking you to teach me how to hotwire a car, man. I want to do something positive. And you're saying no. Yeah. And that was kind of the uh, the intestinal fortitude that I was born with. So you're telling me no? No, man. Hmm. It's back at you. So I joined the community big band in, in Coronado, and, and they were great. And then uh, friends like Mike Hogeen, Doug Musen. Brad Steinway, other guys were saying, look, man, Bill Yeager is still teaching over at San Diego State. Go pay for one class, take an audition, and do it. And so at 50 years old, I did that. Hmm. I, was the old, <laughs> I was the oldest freshman. <laughs> and uh, it, was just a, it was a great learning experience. Mr. Yeager was really helpful. Uh, a lot of the guys were really helpful, Ed Kornhauser being one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, Isaac was another one that 
the bass player at the time was the former drummer. So he knew exactly what to do and what to tell me. Mm -hmm. So I just, Danielle, I've just been, I've been handed these opportunities and I've taken them. Mm -hmm. Some people will shy away from them. I have learned to, to be completely comfortable out of my comfort zone. And that's to me, if I can do that, I'm, I'm streets ahead because I'm just going to be comfortable in wool pajamas on a hot day. No problem. Let's play. Yeah. 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 You've got, you've got that, that natural drive in you. And uh, I, I guess I, I'd like to know, and I'd like to point out the bands that you have played with and that you do play with are the top bands. I mean, these are the creme de la creme bands. And so there's got to be several characteristics or several things about you that have led you to consistently work with such um, high level bands. And aside from your um, just natural inner drive, what do you think are your qualities as a professional musician that have um, allowed these opportunities to present themselves to you? I try to do my best to prepare. Mm -hmm. This is something, <clears throat> this is something that uh, I did some shows with Tim Flannery and this is what we were talking about one time. It's like, man, that team might beat us, but they're not going to prepare us. I'm going to be so ready for these guys. You can't believe it. Mm -hmm. And that when he said that, it was kind of like, you know, that's that's what I bring. That's what I bring. When I was a younger guy playing with older guys, to me, it was like, not only do I want to know my part, I want to know your part. Because if I know your part, then I can speak to your part with my part and completely understand the conversation that we're having musically as opposed to, hey, man, I'm doing my thing. Mm -hmm. No, no, I've got I've got to know. <laughs> kind of like a Chautauqua, kind of like a talking stick. He did this, did this with family and it's like, okay, here's my point and I'm making a point and I've got the talking stick and everybody needs to listen to me. Now, if anybody wants to talk, they take the talking stick and they have to explain exactly what I said and the feeling behind it. Mm -hmm. And then they can speak their piece. So they completely understand. And there's no, there's no, miscommunication at all. And so doing that and taking that time and taking that care uh, to really get it, I think shows a lot of conscientious feeling towards the other players because the other players are trying just as hard as I am, hopefully. <laughs> and uh, you just bring that to the table and it's such a joy to work with. It's like, man, the guy's on his stuff. Not only does he know his stuff, but he knows my stuff and he's able to contribute in every way. Mm -hmm. So I think the only thing, the only thing that's, <laughs> that's kept me out is a little bit of uh, my mom's Mescalero Apache uh, blood and kind of not putting up with much uh, BS and raising my hand and asking the, the question that no one wants to ask. Hmm. Okay. Because to me, it's like, look, it, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about it. If you're performing a piece, be it original or a cover tune, if you're nailing it, you're doing your job. And it's, and it's not easy to do with a bunch of people. So if you're doing that, you're doing a great job. And, uh, What's the other thing? Like stay in your lane, bro. You know, know your job. If if I have nothing but rests until the third measure and my part is a whole note glockenspiel, I'm I nail it and I'm done. That's my job. Yeah. Take take whatever you're doing, man. You know, so and make it fun because this can be kind of a grind, you know. Yeah. Show up to rehearsal tired. One guy didn't learn his stuff. You got to listen to the stuff. Come on. Should be fun. Yeah. We're, pl we're playing. 
<laughs> we're playing. Yeah, what we do for a living is called playing. I mean, how bad can yeah. it be? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I, maybe maybe that's maybe that's some of what they see when they're when they're asking. You know, I, I try to. It's I've been called a human metronome before, and I don't know if I like that. Kind of like a new shirt coming out of the box, a little stiff. <laughs> human metronome, but uh, just bringing care bringing care and uh and concern and fun to a project hopefully that's what people see yeah yeah because i oh, enjoy I... it on stage people see me man you're having a good time you're up there having it's like, hey man what do you do <laughs> you know so right. yeah oh i i definitely can see those qualities and i i would agree i mean at least with my experience in in our band, those are probably the top qualities that we look for mm -hmm. and the top qualities that I can point to and say, this is why this person has had a successful, you know, run with us. Number one, doing the homework and being prepared. I mean, there's no easier way to win <laughs> the hearts of your bandmates. Yes. If you're a sub, when you show up knowing the material, there's you know, it's so nerve wracking for a band leader or anybody really driving the train of a band to have to, Mike calls it babysit all night. And that just, uh, you know, but when you show up and, um, you know, that third point that you made is, is when people feel like you care about their project and that you're actually, you know, taking ownership of it, um, you know, that means the world too. But you mentioned also that you um, are the one that will raise your hand and ask the the hard questions and, and that maybe that's kept you out. But to me, I feel like that's probably one of the big differentiators between working with really highly successful bands that have kind of risen to the top versus those who either don't stick around long or don't, you know, ultimately, you know, progress where they want to is, mm -hmm. is, um, having a lineup of people who are willing to ask those hard questions and to really have uncomfortable conversations with one another to kind of better the arrangement, better the project. And so having someone like you in the mix is, um, a great, great thing. I really believe. Thank you. Thank you. And and for me to, to elaborate, expand on that, it's, you know, when you serve the music, everybody wins. When you serve the music, you're not only, you're not only winning as a musician and understanding your place in this piece of music, but you're also saying, look, I might not be the right vocalist for this. I might not be playing the right part. What are you playing? which goes back to knowing what everybody's playing and seeing what your part does. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's the type of thing that, that when you do it and then other people have, who are practicing that same thing, chiming in, it starts to get exciting and you get excited about playing and you can't wait to the gig and play the tune or you need to work on something. And a prime example of, of kind of pulling off to the side of the road and checking the map is working with Jim Soldi. Jim will sit there and you know this, man. And this is kind of, I, I think, if I'm not mistaking the, the, the story, this comes from him, his days singing with the Carter family. Mm -hmm. And because he had a part assigned, but sometimes that part was taken by someone else who was just going to sing that part. And that's that he had to find on his feet on stage, another harmony part. Mm. And I just sat there and went, well, that's cool math, man. That's that, yeah. as a drummer, like <laughs> me, like me, like, so Jim would pull off to the side and all of a sudden he's coming up with these parts and it's like, Man, I mean, are you just like channeling now? What's going on? Are you coming out? He's coming out with these amazing things. So you sit there and you've got someone with ears like that, or Rick Nash with an arrangement idea like that, or Sharon White with what if we do that? It's just you you're surrounded by smart. <laughs> you're surrounded by wise musicians. Yeah. And know how to 
approach that beast called the tomb. So, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I know <laughs> when you can, when you have um, an ensemble of people that show up, that may be just like radically different from one another, you know, personality wise or just lifestyle wise or whatever. Um, I think it's the groups that can embrace those differences and embrace the different things that everybody brings to the table. Um, those are, you know, those are the ones that just come up with these magical combinations and quality. Uh, and, and I also think that for, for the majority of bands, it's the kiss of death with bands because <laughs> you have this group of people that comes together. That's different. They have different ideas. They have right. different tastes and preferences and personalities and, um, temperaments, you know, and, and I think a lot of bands get together and feel like, uh, you know, one person feels like they need to get everybody on the same sheet and we all have to think the same way. We all need to like, you know, share the same exact vision. Um, if not, you're working against my ideas and, and I feel hurt that you said that and, you know, all wow. these things and, and it wow. just, yeah, the, that's when the that's that's when that's when everybody else runs to that person and gives them a hug, because that's not the the, the intent is is we're not we're not intending to hurt your feelings. We're not intending. You might have a lot of passion about what you're doing, but at the same time, uh, we're just talking about the music, and it's not you know, uh, it's <laughs> what's what's the story that uh, that uh, Stuart Copeland, Miles Copeland's brother, talks about in Dream of the Blue Turtles. It's not because I don't like you. It's not because you're not a great person. You know, it's just this is this is something else. This is something wholly different. Um, and once once the person who feels slighted understands that, I think a lot better communication can come, a lot more understanding. And it's like, oh, oh okay, that's that's what Rosebud meant at the end of that movie. That's, that's I get it now. Mm -hmm. And... Like I said, miscommunication can tear it up. It really can. Yeah. yeah. So, so getting that together, you know, and really making it happen. Um, you know, I got, I got lucky and uh, uh, I've been playing percussion with them for a while. I'm talking about the Steely Damned. And uh, because Bob Teddy, the leader of Rockola, was running into, oh, my light went out. Here we go. It's after dark. Uh, so uh, Bob Teddy who had run the band and he was also running Rockola figured he'd get all four guys in Rockola to be in the Steely Damned and it would save on airplane tickets when we go do this or that mm -hmm. so I got into that for a while and uh, went back to New York and uh, played at a place in New York called La Barbat it's on 57th and uh, 8th something like that in Manhattan and uh, did a uh, Steely Dan show with Blue Lou Marini on saxophone from the Saturday Night Live band mm. from the Howard Shore Orchestra. Um, Bernard Purdy came in, famous drummer. And it was kind of like playing catch with Mickey Mantle, man. You know, it's like I'm sitting there looking at Bernard Purdy, just taking notes on everything he's doing, watching like I've done for years, just watching guys like, how do you do that? How do you do this? So um, I left that band because I was done and I'd kind of done everything. I, you know, just did it. So years later, Hank calls me up and says, I'm running the band. Would you like to sing? Mm -hmm. And sure, man, I'd love to. I'd love to. Uh, along with the Soul Persuaders, uh, that Steely Damned 2 tribute is just something is vocally challenging for me because the math I'm kind of a for lack of a better term I'm a blues based pop singer okay. that's that's kind of the way I look at myself because I don't play an instrument didn't play guitar didn't play bass a little bit here and there but uh never really got the math in my head and then when the Steely Dan gig came along it's like okay now it's time mm -hmm. so Hank's been really patient. All the guys have just been really great in helping me out. And uh, it seems to work. We sell out shows and uh, people dig the band. 
So I don't even know where I was going with this. <laughs> but to me, it's like, you know, just having the opportunity of working with these great people and really taking the opportunities. What do you want to do? Do you want to grow? Do you want to sit there and be happy on your accolades? If you sit there, if you sit there and be happy on your accolades and you're happy, don't let anybody take that away from you. You're happy doing what you do. Mm -hmm. For me, after a certain amount of time, I just learned and really started digging, reaching outside. I want to find something that I'm completely bad at mm -hmm. and I want to get better at it. Mm -hmm. So working with people like Mike Keneally, you know, yeah. that's, I mean, guys are shaking in their boots, man. Mike is, Mike is a beautiful person and an amazing musician, yeah. but to sit there and watch him channel stuff, it's like, God is in the room. <laughs> God, yeah. God is in the room and this is happening. So mm -hmm. how, how many times can you say lucky in an hour? I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm the mole on, I, I tell my audiences, I'm the mole on Marilyn's face. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure that it's luck. You're you're a smart, smart man, Larry, and you you obviously have the uh, you've put in the work. <laughs> you've put in the work, and the the opportunities have been well deserved. Um, I wanted to ask. So was the was Steely Damned your your first like front singing gig, or when did singing kind of come into the picture for you? No, the. Uh... The uh, the soul perspective. I'm going to keep talking here while while I'm doing this. Oh, wow, my phone is dead. Um, the soul persuaders was it? Okay. Uh, when I was younger, I was singing out of necessity, and uh, Tuesday through Thursday was fine. Friday and Saturday, I'm gargling schnapps just to get through Magic Carpet Ride. You know, mm -hmm. so. I found this amazing woman in Santee by the name of Enola Williamson. She was a coloratura soprano who worked at the Starlight Bowl for years, and she had taken lessons from a woman who won auditions at the Metropolitan. Mm. So she had a very solid technique. And I just said, I need, I need to learn because I'm sitting down. I'm sitting down swinging. I'm playing Tom Sawyer, or I'm playing All I Ever Wanted by Santana, and the next thing I know, I'm singing a tune. So... I'm out of breath. I need to figure this out. I did that and worked on it, worked on it. And then finally uh, went in to see uh, the Soul Persuaders and Steve Sears, Sonny Drysdale. Steve Sears calls me up on stage, and I am so scared that I put my jacket over my head <laughs> and over the mic stand and saying, you are so beautiful. It's like it's like it's like John Merrick singing "You Are So Beautiful," you know. With, with just <laughs> so ran into a guy that night who did the national anthem at the sports arena, and Warren Weeby had been doing it for years at the Kings games. I said, "Man, I've always wanted to do that." Mm -hmm. So, along with being asked to join the Soul Persuaders, I started doing a ton of national anthems at the sports arena. And when you're sitting there and you got a guy with his hat on and he's he's buzzing down two hot dogs in a minute and a half and he's yelling, Rockets Red Glare, let's go. <laughs> you don't get shaken. No. After a while, that just does not shake you. Yeah. And you're and you're solid. So had a lot of good experience doing that and then getting up on stage with the soul persuaders. And those guys were great because, because after a while, you know, they started going, man, is you know, singing, you're doing this and doing that. Rick Nash turned to me and whispered under his breath. <laughs> now they think you're a singer, right? <laughs> because I'd been a drummer around town for so long and never a front man gig. So that kind of took off and, with Dick's Last Resort being a testing ground back in the 90s, mm -hmm. you know, that was when there was a line out the door yeah. back in the gas lamp district. And things were kind of popping down there. And uh, it was a great testing ground. 
Because every week you'd have you'd either have people coming in, you'd have people <laughs> coming in from their multi-million dollar uh, corporate party at the uh, convention center, or you'd have some guy coming in who's homeless and just wants to eat, mm-hmm. just wants to sit down and listen to some music. Yeah, I remember just they they were about to kick a guy out, and I'm like, no, nah, man, if if he's not hurting anybody, let him. You know, we're not playing to anybody anyway. Let's let's play to this guy. Yeah, and it's just. Just a good time. So yeah, that was that was the first thing. Hmm. That was the first thing. Soul persuaders. Yeah, very cool. I want to ask about your uh, showmanship because that is a standout quality of yours. You on stage are the life of the party for sure. You are just joyful and fun and energetic, and uh, you are funny. Your wit is incredible you kind of you know you when you come front of stage you you command the stage and just you know um i mean you're just a joy to watch you're fun where Mm. is that just natural in you or do you feel like you've really had to work on that and develop that through the years let's uh let's take the humor the humor uh i was the smallest kid on my block (laughs) 6800 Carthage Street. I was the smallest kid on my block. So to keep guys from beating me up, you got to make them laugh. And if they're laughing, they're not hitting you. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, being a smart aleck in school, uh, being class clown and and uh, doing this and that and learning how to speak to authority mm-hmm. and uh, thumb your nose sometimes at authority. Uh and then I started playing in a place called the Turquoise Lounge. The Turquoise Lounge was in La Mesa off of Severn Drive, I believe. This is where uh, I was playing underage. And uh, the owner was kind enough. He said, look, if you don't mess up, sit there and drink your Coke, be quiet, come in and listen to these guys. And that's where I first heard Warren Weeby and Richard Augustine and people like Don Otten. And when you hear... Warren Weeby sing all this fair and love and he sounds exactly like Stevie wonder. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard not to cry. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in little places like that. And some guys would think they were a part of the band and you're talking East County and you're talking booze and you're talking other ingredients that may be in the mix. <laughs> uh, and you just learn, you just learn how to own your stage. Yeah. This is my stage. You're not getting up on it. Mm-hmm. So I took that as territorial mm. and just said, look, man, you know, hey, I've earned to be up here. You have not. Yeah. So that got a, that kind of got into that. And then with the Dick's Last Resort situation, it was even more stuff because people were able to throw things at the band right. and throw things around. Yeah. So I think one of my drummers, Joe Galvan, the guy from, uh, I think the Bastard Sons of Johnny Cash. He said he recorded a night and he just came back laughing at the stuff I was saying at the crowd because I I don't know what I was saying, but it was it was something worthy of him just dying, just just curling up and laughing. So I think about all those things, and then I think about how <laughs> see, oh darn it, almost got another one in an hour. Then I think about how lucky I am. And uh, family, where I come from. Uh, my, I, had, I have no musicians in my family other than my grandfather on my mother's side who played weddings in Deming, New Mexico, years and years ago. Other than that, nobody played music. My dad played the radio. That was about it. So realizing where I'm at. And how I've fed the bulldog for years. Uh, I'm just. <laughs> how lucky can you get, man? <laughs> look at this face. And people want to come see me. Look at this. Look at this. <laughs> it's just. It's just a joy, man. It's, it's you know, why are you so down? There are some times where I'll get upset when people are talking too much. And I'm sitting there and I've got Jim Soldy playing guitar. Or I've got. Sharon White playing piano. It's like, my God, you would pay 80 bucks to go see this. 
a hundred bucks to go see this at the Civic Theater, and you're sitting there talking through it. <sighs> and you call them out. <laughs> well, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but but to my own detriment because honestly, it's like it's hey, I'm I'm not there to stick your nose in it. For me, it's more like if you don't get it, okay, you don't get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've I've played that, I've done that thing, and it's like it's it turns out it's, ah, come on, just. If, if, if some folks get it, they get it. If they don't, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You always keep it fun. I, I, I am always just amazed by how you can still engage the audience, even when you're at the very rear of, of the stage behind the drum kit. You just, you, you've got a great gift. And um, you're a wonderful musician of course, but, um, you're just a great human to be around. I always love, you know, being in your space and being around you. It's always a fun time. Uh, I just, I've enjoyed every experience that I've had working with you. And I just appreciate so much that you would take the time to come on here and chat with me and, and to the folks in our community who are so important to both, both of us. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Oops, go ahead. If I may, um, whoever's listening and whoever's watching, if you're a musician, uh, you know, the one thing that I always dug about my era of musician and some other guys will agree with this because they're kind of my age or had the similar experience. A lot of times at music stores, there was a guy behind the counter who was a player and he had a day gig and it was a music and it was at a music store. Um, I think of two people right now, just off the top of my head. I think of Dan Astor. Dan Astor was a uh, was a fixture at Albert's Music City, and so was Ray Tejadas. Ray Tejadas was another guy that was a big time fixture. And you'd be sitting there and just ogling the shiny symbols, you know, stuff you can't afford, and the big drum kit, and you know, you know, never gonna. How do you play all that stuff? And there's a guy going, "Hey, kid, come over here. Uh, come here. Come here. Come here. Come here." Uh, let me see a, a reverse paradiddle. You know, do a paradiddle and just you know, helping you out with little stuff that you that is in the background years later, and it comes off, and you go, yeah, that guy. Mm. So I I would beg and plead uh, musicians that have somebody that is learning stuff or is looking to you to be helped with stuff, help them because this is how we grow better musicians for our community by not just hiding the recipe, but sharing it because it was, it was shared with me by many people in this town and many people out of this town. And I've been able to spread it around and with help kind of pass on that thread. So if you're there, man, and someone's reaching out to you, or they need that cord, or they keep asking you about that kind of stuff. Help them out because it, it's you won't believe what comes back when you help someone. Mm-hmm. Great message. I love. I love ending it on that. That's such a great message. Right on. Um, to anyone who's listening, if you want to experience Larry's magic, you can check him out this summer. Uh, he'll be on the. Um, the El Cajon Summer Concert Series, playing yes. with Soul Persuaders, Big Time Operator, Back to the Garden. Yes. So yeah, keep an eye on uh, their schedule. I I had just recently heard heard this too that they are um, they are gonna uh, continue on with their schedule this summer, which is wonderful. That was great news, nice. and we'll definitely look forward to seeing you out there. And again, I just want to thank you for taking the time to do this. This was a great conversation. I knew it would be. <laughs> because you're so fun. You're so fun. But um, I, I look forward to the next opportunity to work with you. Hopefully it'll be sooner than later, but. Um, True. Yeah. We'll just keep our fingers crossed and, you know, stay safe and uh, do all the things we're supposed to do as it just kind of creeps forward to finally opening up and us getting back together. I can't wait to hug people. I know. I, I had this lady come up to me. I went to a party one time and this lady said, you know, at first I thought you were the manager at Humphreys by the Bay because you walked around to all the tables and then you got on stage and you said, 
what the heck is the manager doing singing with the band? It's like, it's like, no, I just like going over saying, hi, I'm with the band. We hope you have a great time tonight. And just that, just that feeling of bringing people back and, and connecting. Thanks so much for joining us. If you love this conversation as much as I did and would like to help support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. To stay up to date with The Unstoppable Singer and get all the behind the scenes content, you can follow me on Instagram at Unstoppable Singer. And while you're there, please share this episode on your Instagram stories and tag me at Unstoppable Singer. Once again, I'm Danielle Tucker, a professional singer and vocal coach. I've spent the last 25 years crafting a successful career for myself in the music industry and showing other aspiring singers how to do the same. The world needs your voice now more than ever. So get out there and create an unstoppable career. Thanks so much for joining.